I, I would like to welcome you all. My name is Bernard Haeckel. I'm a professor in the Department of Near Eastern Studies here at Princeton. And um, I was thrilled when I was uh, contacted by uh, Darius, who asked me to uh, moderate and introduce and then moderate this event. Um, there's a great need for us to be talking about what's happening in Iran, uh, given recent events. And uh, today we have three um, really interesting and, and uh, speakers. Uh, they will each speak for about five minutes, uh, and then we'll have a question and answer and discussion between the panelists uh, until we hit the 40-minute mark. And after that, we'll open it up to questions and answers from the audience. So our first speaker is um, Mariam Mermar Sadiri, who is the founder of the Sirus Forum, uh, founder and director, and also senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Um, she's a major advocate for a democratic Iran, uh, a leading advocate. Uh, our second is uh, Mr. Ahmed Batebi, who is a former political prisoner uh, in, in Iran. He's also a journalist and a human rights activist. Uh, and last but not least is Mr. Len Khodorkovsky, who is the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State and Senior Advisor to the U.S. Representative for Iran. Uh, I'll just say one thing about him, because I know it. Uh, he played a very important role in the release of a Princeton graduate student uh, from prison in Iran, uh, Shiva Wang, who is now free, thank God. All right, with that, uh, please let's begin with Mariam and then Ahmed and then Len. Thank you so much, Professor. Um, I want to start by asking you to think about a number, 1,216. 1,216 are the number of days and nights that Shi Wei Wang was in prison um, in Iran. Uh, as I talk to you about what's uh, happening right now, the revolution, the imprisonment and torture and beatings and uh, killings and forced confessions and um, abductions, uh, including of many, many children, countless children, Think about the fact that one of your very own, um, a fellow Princetonian, uh, languished in that same prison, Evin, for 1,216 days. Um, the significance of the protests or the revolution um, now can't be overestimated. Uh, internally in Iran, it means that millions of Iranians can uh, live freely uh, if they manage to succeed to overthrow this regime, which is unmistakably their demand. Um, after uh, cycles and attempts at reform and dialogue, they came to the conclusion, actually long, long before this revolution, that reform is impossible. Uh, it took time and it took a lot of bravery and it took a lot of self-sacrifice to get to the point where ordinary or average, if you will, Iranians are willing to risk their lives day in and day out in cities and towns across the country so that their nation can be free. And the significance, though, goes well beyond their own nation. It's so that the people of the Middle East can live, um, can have a chance at dignity and can have a chance at peace. Many, many countries in the region are dominated by what is really an imperial mafia state. Uh, the Islamic Republic controls uh, the economies and the political life of a, a large uh, uh, part of the Middle East. It's not just the Arab-Israeli conflict, it's also Iraq, it's also Yemen, it's also Syria, it's also Lebanon, uh, it's Afghanistan. All these countries, the people in them, will have a chance to determine their own destiny, destiny if this regime is not ruling and instead Iranians have a democracy. Um, I don't want to take too much time now, but there are a couple of things that have to do with Princeton in particular and the uh, regime in Iran that I want to bring your attention to later. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, good afternoon. Um, we have a lot of things about Iran if you want to talk about that, but these days we know that we have a revolution in Iran, and uh, the Iranian people inside and outside the country are never called the Iranian regime 
some of the public media. They call, um, thank you, they call um, criminal cult. And in Farsi, they say, Tervei Tarakal. What the meaning of that? Why Iranian people, after four decades, call this regime uh, uh, criminal cult? Um, the base of uh, uh, this regime is on um, fair and scaring people. From the beginning, um, I mean, uh, the Revolution 77, which I call Iranian nation suicide, um, the first supreme leader of the regime, Ayatollah Khomeini, not this one, since Khomeini, before that, uh, he died. Um, when he came in Tehran, you know what was his first uh, activity? I know you never believe that. Uh, he said that uh, I'm going to go temporarily uh, uh, live in a place uh, uh, we call Madrasa Repa, the school Repa in Japan, uh, that was so famous. Uh, he uh, took a room there and uh, he ordered to uh, kill all uh, people who were involved in Shah Hall, top of the roof. It's unbelievable. Supreme leader is in school, a place you know you have to go for education, and order kill people, army commander, I mean the authorities, all people, come off the roof, and every night he could hear this voice, but he was silent. He started the regime by these techniques, <clears throat> and they continue that. My personal experience, you see this picture behind me, a bloody teacher. That's uh, my picture of uh, 1999 when I was young, as a student like you. Actually, I'm a student yet. <laughs> but <clears throat> that time in Tehran, the Iranian regime attacked to um, Tehran dormitory called Kuhi Anushka. And uh, they killed some students. And um, uh, after that, they started a big demonstration against the government. Um, inside the um, uh, University of Tehran, but they again attack us and uh, one of the uh, 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 I mean security forces shoot uh, someone um, to the shoulder and I try to hold the, uh, I mean, uh, uh, the, the blood by, by his t-shirt and I don't know someone the name, famous Iranian photojournalist uh, took this picture. Anyway, that's uh, all the story. Uh, they put me in jail for this picture, and they said that you have to come um, in a state TV and said that uh, this blood is fake. And uh, I uh, made this picture about Greek, I don't know, tomato sauce or animal blood uh, or something like that. And they tortured me uh, for, for this interview. Uh, in, in prison, in solitary confinement. At the beginning, they gave me capital punishment. I was in uh, solitary confinement for two years, and uh, uh, in, in total, year, 10 years of prison for this picture and other things. But I said to a prisoner guard, you tortured me for uh, interview. So you think if I come in TV and say that, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I received money from, I don't know, the United States or Israel and made this picture, you think people believe that? You know what was, what was his answer? He said that we don't care people believe your word or not. It's important for us. They know that. We put pressure on them. We torture them and bring them here in front of the camera. And they have to say those things we want. So this is technique. We know that. Other countries, I don't know, maybe uh, China or other countries, they have these techniques. Um, how they do that? Um, at the beginning of this regime, 77 after the revolution, uh, they tried to control army. And uh, for, for uh, they, they didn't have uh, trust to uh, uh, the Iranian army. They created a new army for uh, for a country in the name of IRGC, the Revolutionary Guard. And right now, Revolutionary Guard is a big Mafia in Iran. They control everything. This is military group, but they control industry, they control culture, they control banks, they control economy, everything. And um, if you see, I brought um, a, a print of uh, uh, Constitution of IRGC. I don't know how do you say it? 
whatever you say, uh, for you. <clears throat> this big military group, if you see the Constitution, you cannot find even one time they talk about Iran or people or nation. All these responsibilities they put here for this military group is protecting the regime and export the values of the revolution. So what is the revolution? What is the value of that? During these four decades, <coughs> they, they didn't have any uh, result. You know, uh, there is no any, I don't know, uh, they didn't make building, they didn't make you know, I don't know, uh, medicine for cancer, nothing, nothing. The only thing they had some uh, uh, military facilities. So, <clears throat> I'm going to show you something. Definitely, uh, uh, you cannot believe that the Ayatollah Khomeini, who is uh, founder of IRGC, um, and IRGC, uh, hundred percent trust to this person has a, has a book, <coughs> and in this book, he wrote some rules and uh, uh, Islamic rules and described some. Sharia uh, law uh, for for people and other disciplines follow that. Believe or not, I brought that. Believe or not, um, I think we should save that. Okay, that's sorry for that. No, no, it's okay. It's uh, okay. There is there is something we cannot even talk about that. We cannot even uh, read it in public. They are going to export these things to your country, to the United States, this third country. They don't have any value. So right now, they kill people, Iranian people, to control the power, and export these things, which if you want, privately, I can give you Thank you. Um, thank you very much. Um, so I, I, I think I want to put the issue of U.S.-Iran relations in a slightly broader scope. Um, as uh, you, you, you may know that the Islamic Republic of Iran was founded in 1979. Uh, one of its uh, founding events, one of the founding events of the Islamic Republic was, as I call it, the original sin of taking Americans hostage. You may recall uh, uh, American diplomats and people working in the American embassy at the time were taken hostage for 444 days, I believe, 52 of them. Uh, and um, our relations between the two countries severed uh, severely at that point. Uh, and since that day, uh, the mantra of the regime has been death to America, death to Israel. They called Israel the little Satan. They called the United States the great Satan. And that has been inculcated into the regime uh, for 43 years at this point. So our relations have severed in a significant way, and, um, and we have not recovered uh, for all of this time. But um, from a geopolitical perspective, it's important for us to kind of um, understand why Iran is important to the United States, why Americans should care about what's happening in Iran. Uh, as far as the United States government is concerned, and this is you know bipartisan understanding, uh, Iran, or the Islamic Re Republic of Iran, many Iranian dissidents and Iranian citizens really don't like when you call the Islamic Republic just Iran because they don't consider it Iranian. They consider it an imposition on their, on their rich and uh, uh, um, proud culture. So the Islamic Republic of Iran is the single most destabilizing force in the Middle East. Middle East is a very combustible neighborhood, as you probably know. Uh, many wars, terrorism. Uh, we've had upheaval in terms of uh, energy crises. There's, uh, um, uh, there's, there, there's always something combustible happening in the region. And if you look at where things are happening that cause the most um, the, the, the most problems, the, the, the most human death, the most economic issues, the most destabilization, they can 
generally be traced to the Islamic Republic of Iran because its strategy has been to metastasize across the region and plan their proxies in as many countries as they can so that they can control them and, 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 and never allow the, the, the local governments to be powerful enough, A, to uh, maintain their own sovereignty, B, to challenge Iran's dominance of the region. Uh, but see, it gives them it gives them certain control um, to to impose its will on the neighborhood. So, uh, just a couple of examples that you may or may not be familiar with. The most uh, obvious one is Hezbollah, which is uh, a Iranian proxy group in Lebanon, uh, which essentially answer, does not answer to the Lebanese government. It answers to the Ayatollah in Iran. Yet there are a party in Lebanon, the Houthis in Yemen. You may have heard about. The, the, the war in Yemen over the last few, you know, few years, uh, Houthi, Houthis in Yemen are a proxy group of the Iranian regime. And they are at war with the local Yemeni government. Uh, the same is true in Iraq, where you have uh, Iranian proxies destabilizing Iraq. Uh, you have the same thing in Gaza and uh, the West Bank, where Hamas and Islamic Jihad and groups like that don't really care about the local people. They, they, they get their finances, and they get their weapons, and they get their training and their lifeblood from the regime in Tehran. So if you look at all of these loose threads, America's national security, uh, as it pertains to one of the most combustible regions in the world, goes back to countering Iran. And you know, you've heard a lot about uh, negotiate, nuclear negotiations with Iran. Look, the premise of all of that is, can we allow, we, the United States, we, our allies, can we allow the world's foremost terrorist regime, and this is not me saying it, this is the United States State Department saying it uh, since mid-80s, um, can we allow the, 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 most, the biggest sponsor of terrorism in the world to attain a nuclear weapon? Can you imagine the damage that would be done by a regime that's already doing so much damage, not just in the region, but around the world. Uh, you trace assassination attempts on dissidents, on other foreign government figures uh, across all continents, maybe not in North Pole, but uh, everywhere else. As a matter of fact, they tried to assassinate a Saudi ambassador in Washington uh, a few years ago. That's how brazen they've been. They've actually tried to kidnap an American citizen this earlier this year you may have seen Masi Alinejad. Uh, the, the plan was to kidnap her, bring her to Venezuela, and from Venezuela, transport her to Iran, where they would, as, as Ahmad had said, they would, they would put her on TV and made her recant uh, everything that she's been um, uh, 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 talking about and, and standing for all of these years. So this is, this is still happening, and this is why Iran is such an important issue. And, the last thing I would say uh, is it's important to differentiate between the Iranian people and the Iranian regime. And we know that. The, the United States government knows that. Uh, I hope the Iranian people understand that whatever policies that the United States government undertakes is not aimed at the Iranian people. Iranian people could be the best friends of the United States if they're allowed to um, choose their own government and uh, decide who represents them on a global stage. So, um, uh, but, but of course, you know, when we put on sanctions, when we uh, squeeze the regime in, in, in multiple ways, diplomatic, um, um, economic, etc., you know, they want to say that the, you know, the United States and its allies are doing this to hurt the Iranian people. They try and use it for their propaganda. Of course, that's not true. But what is true is that the Iranian people are now out on the streets. They've, they've um, had a, um, I think they've had enough. They've, there have been a, a slow growth of protests over the last 10 years, certainly. Um, there were significant protests in 2019 where 1,500 people were massacred by the regime. And now people have uh, gotten enough courage to go back out on the street. And these protests have now lasted about two months. Uh, and I think, uh, I think it's a very, very um, uh, precarious time in Iran. And uh, I think it, it behooves the American people 
American uh, young people, students to stand with Iranian students. Uh, that's, that's who's out on the street. The young women, young students are leading the charge to, um, to allow Iran to recapture its destiny of 2,500 years that did not include the imposition of the Islamic Republic. So with that, I'll just leave it here, and then we can, we can take it from there um, as we go along. Thank you. Um, so perhaps I could ask the same question of all three of you. How do you feel um, the present U.S. administration has handled uh, the Iranian uh, situation both before and since the beginning of, of the recent demonstrations and, and, uh, and uprising? Well, it hasn't been nearly as strong as it should be, considering. Can you turn on your mic? The response from the Biden administration is not nearly as strong as it should be, considering that this revolution is the greatest opportunity for U.S. national security interests in the Middle East, probably since the 1979 revolution. There has never been an opening like this for the United States to basically get rid of its um, number one, the number one state sponsor of terror, uh, enemy number one in, in many ways. Of course, there's China too, and there's Putin's Russia, but um, Iran has stood in the way of uh, peace and stability in the Middle East region, but also has helped practically every terror group that we can imagine, directly or indirectly, and so is a threat to American freedom right here at home, too. Um, the reason that we have gotten to a place where uh, the Biden administration is, is rhetorically supporting the protesters, uh, the revolutionaries in the country, but isn't willing to actually change its policy uh, to one where it's proud to say, um, we support not just their right to protest, but we support the content of their demands. Um, the Iranian people are, are demanding the same thing that people in uh, the anti-apartheid movement in um, South Africa demanded, or uh, people in the Solidarity Movement in Poland, or the Velvet Revolution in uh, Czechoslovakia. They are um, pressing for, agitating for, uh, regime change. They, they know that the only way that they can have their rights and opportunity, a chance at a merit-based economy, um, a dignified life, life really, uh, the right to life, is if the regime uh, goes. There is no prospect for uh, incrementally reforming it, improving life for themselves so long as the regime exists. A lot of it is because of what Ahmed mentioned, that the um, Islamic uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps is a very, very big mafia organization that controls every aspect of economic life, not just political, uh, is not just a force for political repression. but. The reason that the Biden administration still holds on to um, an appeasement posture, basically, is because of a set of ideas that are called progressive that um, are supported by people at institutions as elite and respected as Princeton University. Let me give you two examples. Right here at Princeton University, there are two individuals who are um, teaching who are very close to the Iranian regime. Hossein Musavian was uh, ambassador of the regime to Germany when there was a uh, big terrorism attack in that country by the regime. A restaurant called Mykonos uh, was um, a place where opposition figures, opposition to the regime had gathered. And um, there was a terror attack. Somebody, people came in and, and shot at everyone in, in that restaurant. It was very bloody. I happened to be friends with uh, the one person who survived from that attack. Um, Hussein Musavian was ambassador from the regime to Germany at the time that this happened in Germany. And he said, no, it's not true. Uh, he denied it. He said that the court will show in Germany that it, that it's not true. Um, we don't we don't kill people even in Iran. He said, much less outside of Iran. Um, the German court found that, um, uh, of course, the regime had done it, and um, and Hussein Musavian left Germany. When he left Germany, he went back to Iran 
and he worked at the highest level to do intelligence, uh, so-called national security work for the regime. Then he found his way here to Princeton University. How is that? How is that that somebody who works for a regime that brutal and that cruel ends up at an Ivy League school teaching about security, teaching about national security, global security? And even if the reason is that during the Obama years there was um, the idea or at least the attempt to have some kind of reconciliation, which activists like Ahmad uh, warned would never work with a regime that is totalitarian. How come it's still going on? How come he's still, to, he came here in 2009, how come he's still here when there's a revolution for freedom going on in Iran? How come he was here during all the years that Shi Wan was in prison in Iran, a Princetonian was in Iran, and somebody like Hussein Musavian was here? You might say, well, Princeton could have made use of Musavian, some kind of a, intermediary to the regime. But Musavian did nothing to free Xi Wang. did absolutely nothing. This is happening while, as um, Len said, uh, somebody like Masih Alinejad has a kidnapping plot on her head. When the, the, when the regime is actively trying to kill former US, uh, high-level US officials like uh, Pompeo and Hook and others, um, uh, Hossein Musavian uh, laughed about how uh, he was happy that um, Brian Hook, the uh, Trump administration's lead policy person on Iran, um, his wife was uh, shaking in her bed at night because he might be killed. He was laughing about that. Somebody teaching at Princeton University, laughing about that. Another person teaching here is Behruz Hamadi Tabrizi. He is the head of the Near East um, affairs uh, uh, part of Princeton University. Uh, this is a very, very coveted position. Bernard Lewis used to sit in that seat. He teaches modern Iran. He's very proud to call himself a Marxist revolutionary. He participated in the, in the 1979 revolution, and he boasts about the fact that he uh, knows at least half of the hostage takers. The, ho the, the American hostages taken in 1979, he knows half of them. He teaches here at Princeton University. His name and his scholar, so-called scholarship is listed on the regime's think tank website. The assembly of experts who chooses the supreme leader um, has um, uh, sort of blessed his scholarship on their website. He himself boasts about his close relations with the regime. He boasts about the fact that he, he visits the archives of the regime on a regular basis. Xi Wang was arrested and imprisoned because he visited those archives. How is it that Xi Wang gets arrested and thrown in prison for visiting those archives, but this man who teaches here uh, it, it can go there easily? He, is, he has said that the regime is not totalitarian, it's pluralist. And in, about the issue, and the last point, the issue of women's rights, he has said that no, the women in Iran are not oppressed and um, he writes regularly on, on Counterpunch, which is hardly a scholarly uh, uh, journal. I, I, I wanted to close on the point about women because women and girls are risking their lives. They're risking being raped, tortured, beaten, executed because they want their rights. And person who here, who not only teaches about Iran but is the head of Near East Studies, says that they're not oppressed. Uh, let me add something about Musavian. Um, <coughs> Mykonos uh, restaurateur wasn't the only one during his measure happened in Germany. A lot of uh, political dissidents, including Feridun Farouk Zad, one of the famous showmen, uh, uh, Iranian Jim killed uh, uh, this guy. And uh, at the end, the Germany government kicked him out by court order. He then left the country. Officially, uh, they uh, kicked him out, and uh, the intelligence service of that country said that this guy is dangerous for uh, uh, our country. And he came here, and he gives advice to uh, Obama administration. If you know Farsi, all those things he provide here as an article or advice or I don't know anything. This is a copy of Iranian Supreme Leader speech. He followed that country's policy out of the country. And during these years, unfortunately, 
um, the Iranian regime made a big lobby in the United States as a non-profit organization in the name of Nayak. They have influence, uh, actually not now too much, but uh, they have influence on the uh, US government, specifically uh, um, uh, Biden administration. And right now, the US government looking for deal, nuclear deal with, with the country, which is not normal when you say Iran, I mean, uh, the Islamic Republic in Iran, we do not talk about a normal regime or government, which is representative of the nation. They are criminal cult. They, they have mission, they have ideology, and they are looking for opportunity to reach those things they want. So right now is the time the US government accept that this country is not representative, I mean, this regime is not representative of the nation, and deal with this regime doesn't have any legitimacy. Uh, um, so I just want to go back to the to what Biden administration is doing, could be doing. Um, but before that, I don't want you guys to feel so bad about these individuals in Princeton. There's there's a, a, a professor at Oberlin College. His name is Mohammed Mahalati, uh, um, who was the Iranian regime's uh, ambassador to the United Nations when. More than 5,000 Iranians were massacred by the Khomeini um, uh, regime, and he is now, quote unquote, the professor of peace at Oberlin. So, um, so you know, I don't know what that says about the vetting process uh, here in the United States. Perhaps it talks a lot about our acceptance and and uh, our, our generosity, but it's kind of weird, right? Uh, but uh, let, let, let me let me just talk about uh, the the policy perspective. So um, the Biden administration, when it took office in January of uh, 21, uh, essentially reversed the Trump policy of maximum pressure on the regime. So when the when the Biden administration took office, uh, the regime was enriching uranium at. Four and a half percent today is enriching at over sixty percent. When the Biden administration took office, the Iranian regime had about four billion dollars in foreign cash reserves. Today, it has around ten times that. Um, the The strategy of the Biden administration has been to go back into what you may know as uh, the Iran deal or the J JCPOA agreement, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action where the United States and uh, five other entities entered into a nuclear agreement with the previous government in Iran um, to, for Iran to stop enriching uranium, essentially, to allow access to its nuclear facilities to the UN's uh, atomic agency. Uh, and for that, Iran would stop, um, you know, would, 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 actually wouldn't stop, it would slow down its activity on building its nuclear program for a certain period of time, 15 years, after which it could resume its program as if nothing ever happened. So the Trump administration might have put uh, uh, very strenuous sanctions on the regime um, that put a lot of external and internal pressure on the regime, uh, and the Biden administration decided to reverse that. So we have been in a, in a period of time where two years of the Biden administration, where their uh, Iran envoy, his name is Rob Malley, has been engaging the Iranian regime and trying to cobble back the JCPOA agreement <clears throat> to have Iran, the Iranian regime, go back and honor the tenets of that original agreement, which many of us uh, think was uh, fatally flawed to begin with, but. Um, but, but the Biden administration and our, you know, some of our allies think it's better than nothing, so they've decided to pursue that. Now, what that has allowed the regime to do in the last two years as a result of this policy decision is all of those sanctions that, put, uh, that made it harder for the regime to make money by selling its oil, by you know, uh, various other banking, illicit banking activity, uh, has come back. Uh, even though the sanctions are technically still on the table, uh, the enforcement measures aren't there. So the Biden administration decided to look the other way.
for the Iran's, when the Iranian regime is now selling oil to China and other uh, entities around the world and is able to recoup some of that money it lost in the last four years. Uh, what that money has allowed the uh, Iranian government to, to do is to get rich again, to, uh, to be able to finance all of these proxy movements around the region again, to uh, increase its defense budget and the budget of, uh, of the Basiji uh, you know, uh, group, which is in charge of cracking down on the protesters. So the trade-off here has been, for the last two years, I'm sure President Biden and his team did not intend to empower the, the regime to, so that they can kill Iranians, but that, in effect, is what's happening. Uh, they, have, they have now replenished themselves with resources to be able to kill uh, its, you know, its people domestically and <clears throat> finance its external proxies again. So what, what the Biden administration can do, in my view, at this point, which they've been inching towards since the protests have began, uh, begun, and, and many, many countries cannot possibly endorse what they're doing to, its own, to their own people, um, is they paused the negotiations on the nuclear uh, issue, and they have done certain things to enable the Iranian people access to uh, communications tools of one sort or another, uh, but they have not fully, as Mariam has said, they have not fully come out and said, we are with the people. They have, they have made an incremental step of saying they should have a right to protest, but have not weighed in as to what they're protesting about. Um, so I think the Biden administration can do a lot more in making the Iranian people understand that they have a friend here in the United States. And they care about that. They care. Even if we did nothing else, what would be important for the Iranian people that are languishing in prisons, that are being tortured, that are putting their lives on the line by going out on the street and ripping down the Ayatollah's poster uh, or, or, uh, or taking off their headscarves in the women's cases, uh, that in and of itself gets them a death penalty. Um, what, what the Biden administration can do is be unequivocal and rally our allies, so not just the Biden administration, rally our French allies, rally our British allies, rally our European allies, rally anyone else that uh, is willing to stand and, and say clearly to the Iranian regime, we're not going to put up with this. They can throw out the Iranian diplomats from the United States and their own capitals because they're not really diplomats. They're tools of the IRGC, as Ahmad had said. IRGC is not just a uh, kind of like the shadow government in Iran. Uh, think of it as Gestapo. It's, it's, uh, it's, you know, if you recall in World War II, there was the German army, but then there was Gestapo. That was the, the brutal, ruthless uh, regime, uh, uh, organization that reported directly to Hitler. That is essentially what IRGC is in Iran. It, re it does not report to the people. It is not bound by any other uh, uh, agreement. It reports directly to Ayatollah Khamenei. So what, what the Biden administration can do and what our allies can do is stop pretending that anything else is the case and bounce the people that we know that are here that represent IRGC, close down the Iranian mission in Washington, D.C. Now, it's not technically an embassy, but there is something uh, the Pakistani embassy in Washington represents the interests of the Iranian government. We can close that down and tell them to go home. We can tell the, uh, close down the Iranian regime's UN offices and tell them to go home. Uh, so there are things that we can do, and there are things that our allies can do that would be a big boost to the Iranian people. So for, you know, I, I, think, I think we could do more, and we should do more. So I, I want to open it up to the audience, but before I do so, I, I would like to ask a final question. And it's a kind of two-part question. The first part, I'm playing devil's advocate sure. with you. So there's an argument that's, a, and this is an argument that the regime itself deploys, mm -hmm. which is that, you know, we protected Iran from the Iraqi invasion and we kept Iran united. So this is a nationalist argument. The other argument that they make, and I think there's some credibility to that argument, is that 
we have brought electrification and health services and roads and education to a to a, a group of Iranians, certainly a certain segment of the population has benefited from the regime. And even under Hitler, you had willing uh, Germans who were, you know, maybe not uh, Gestapo, but they were not, you know, they were they supported the regime. So th there are of supporters. Course, there's right? always going to be supporters. Right. So uh, the way I think about Iran often is the way I think about Hezbollah in Lebanon, which is that one third of the community, roughly, in Lebanon of Shiite Lebanese are with Hezbollah, either because they're beneficiaries of Hezbollah's largesse, because they are salaried, or because Hezbollah does things for them, right? So th so this is a regime that, you know, while you describe it the way you do, has done certain things and has some support. Um, so that's the first question. What would you say to that? The second question I would have is, since you're in touch with, I imagine, a number of the demonstrators, can you give us some texture for what these demonstrations are like? How are they different from before? Is there a leadership that's emerging? Because what we see as outsiders is that there are no leaders. There, there's very courageous people, especially women, but they don't actually amount to much because the regime can crush them if, if it chooses to, and it is doing that. Great questions. That's why universities are great. The questions are much better. <laughs> um, I think Ahmed can answer the question about what's the revolution all about? And I think we can all answer the question about leadership also. But let me ask, try to answer your first question. Yes, there are people who support this regime, just as you said, there were people who supported Hitler or Mussolini or Pol Pot or any totalitarian leader. Um, why do they support them, however, in Iran? Because it is a mafia state and they benefit from that rentier. Uh, economy, even the children or even some of the, 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 the parents who are part of the regime right now are speaking out. Uh, they can't live with this level of evil. Um, I do take issue with the, the idea that with health and electricity and water and all of that, first of all, it's 43 years. In 43 years, you expect something is going to happen in a country. To give the regime credit for that, I think, is is like giving Castro credit for the health system in Cuba. I mean, the health system in Cuba sounds really good if you're reading a, a socialist journal or something, but once you actually talk to people in Cuba, you realize that if they go to the hospital, if they want to get a blood transfusion, they have to pay for it. If they want to have surgery, they have to pay for it. And of course, these people have no money. So you have a high level of prostitution in Cuba. You have a high level of people just languishing on the street in Cuba. It's a lot of propaganda. I mean, I, I'm sure Len knows the equivalent in the, about the Soviet Union. People who would say that, well, well the so in the Soviet Union, women have equality. Equality, what, equality of what? Equality in, in slavery? You know, it, 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 um, what the regime has done is decimated what was once a middle class. There is no longer an economy that is a real economy. People used to go out and they would work, and because they had an education that had that, that they had merit because of their education, because of their skills, because of the caliber of their work, they would be rewarded financially because of that. There is no merit-based economy now anymore. They, people get rewarded because of how loyal they are to the regime. It's basically a mafia network. So. When things are working in Iran, for example, during COVID, it was heroic how nurses and doctors stepped up to service the people's needs. They go out of their way to compensate for the lack of competence and efficiency by the regime. There are very good people in Iran who have a high education, they care about the people, they care about their country, and they're compensating for an evil regime. If you see things that are working, it's because of them, not because of a Khamenei and his cabal ruling. But I'll let Ahmed talk about the people at the ground, on the ground, who are sacrificing their lives now. Uh, uh, before that, uh, I said something. Uh, based off the information, we don't have uh, direct access to Iran, but based off uh, the information we already have, maximums before this revolution, seven, percent of uh, the Iranian people support the regime, 
because they have been their families in Europe government or they have to be committed for some reason. So this is not too much. And during these four decades, those uh, money of the uh, country made and those uh, national sources, they use it uh, to make money. It was much, much, much more than that thing the regime spent for, you know, uh, uh, making building, village, or something like that. So there is corruption, and Iranian people know that. That's why that civil person I said uh, 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 before that, uh, the part of that never supported the regime there for this corruption. So, um, what about the uh, 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 difference between, uh, I mean, this demonstration in the past? Uh, the big difference is uh, this revolution is headless, and there is no any specific leadership. Uh, people know that, they have experience, and they know that if uh, they want to introduce someone as a leader, definitely the Iranian regime uh, arrest or out of the country will be uh, uh, killed. That's why there is no any uh, uh, leadership. And the Iranian people uh, learned during these years how to use internet and uh, uh, social media and some uh, messenger applications like you know, Telegram, WhatsApp, and these things to organize each other. For example, right now we have a uh, underground group in the name of Jawanul Mahal, use of uh, neighborhoods, something like that. Uh, they are ordinary people. And, uh, they don't have a specific place, they don't have a specific number or, or any email, but they are in the uh, uh, society, all, all cities, and they are active, and they organize people inside the street. So this is the big difference. The other one is the percentage of uh, women who are involved right, right now in the administration. Uh, recently, um, a block reward uh, hacker group uh, hacked the first uh, news agency, which is for uh, IRGC, and they released some research, confidential research of this uh, news agency, which was reported to head of IRGC. This information, uh, this is confidential, this information said that uh, uh, minimum 53% of women of the country right now are involved uh, in the research, and it's dangerous. And the second thing is students, high school students. Uh, before that, they never come involved because you know, they are independent, they have family, they, uh, their family most of the time uh, control them. But right now, they are involved, and they directly, they will directly uh, 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 fight with government. They have Right now, this information is from yesterday, about 56 people, if I remember correctly, uh, students died in the street. So this is big, big I mean, uh, the difference between uh, uh, this uh, administration, this revolution, and uh, the past. Thank you. Sure. All right, so questions. You have two, three, I mean, an American and two Iranians. So you can get different perspectives. Yes. I guess my question, thank you so much. It's truly fascinating. And uh, I guess my question is, as for sanction part of the regime. Um, Sorry, I can barely hear you. Sanctions. OK. Yes. I was wondering um, if, let's say, there's an alternative that Biden administration can do, which is to put maximum sanction and pressure on the Iranian regime. What do you think that would look like? And the second question, what do you guys do you think that is just So uh, it's a very important question because it goes into the calculation of what to do, who's, who's going to do it, what effect it's going to have. Um, the, the idea of sanctions uh, is something that came about actually well before the Trump administration, before the Obama administration. It was imposed by the UN. The uh, UN had, uh, there was an international, uh, international sanctions on the Iranian regime because it was discovered that its nuclear program, which the regime intended was for peaceful purposes, 
was actually for military purposes. And at that point, the international community put on a lot of sanctions via the UN, via various other organizations, that initially brought, it, it pressured, put enough pressure on that regime at the time to bring the regime back to the, not back, but to bring them to the table to negotiate with the Obama administration uh, on the initial nuclear agreement, the JCPOA. So the, you know, the, whether the sanctions work, we know they work then. We know they work then to bring them to the table because at a certain point when you're running out of money, when you can't pay your enforcers at home, when you don't have money to pay your proxies in Lebanon, Yemen, Iraq, and everywhere else, they stop supporting you. So your power diminishes. And when you can't uh, give uh, demonstrating truckers a payout, um, you know, so that they would stop demonstrating, your power diminishes. So um, it worked. It worked the first time. It brought them to the table. The deal that the Obama administration uh, concluded with the regime, uh, in my opinion and in many other people's opinion, fell well short of what it should have done. Uh, the, the Trump administration decided to reinstate some of those sanctions that the Obama uh, administration lifted as part of the nuclear agreement. So uh, the Trump administration put on what was called the maximum pressure campaign. And it essentially uh, targeted the top three to five economic sectors of the Iranian economy. So oil, metal production, um, plastic, uh, various other things where the regime was able to make some money. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, it succeeded in driving down the regime's treasury to the point where, um, you know, in January of 21, uh, its its uh, foreign reserves were down to four billion. Which, to give you perspective, Afghanistan had 11 billion at the time. So, as 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 much of a basket case as that country was, uh, the Iranian regime had much less money in, in, in January of 21. So, sanctions worked to diminish its power because. Hezbollah had to resort to raising money domestically with charity boxes in the grocery stores that they controlled around the hospitals. They put up billboards trying to raise money. Uh, they couldn't, uh, um, the Iranian proxies in Syria were no longer being paid by the regime. So they had no allegiance to the regime anymore. Um, th there was a certain point where the regime actually started using children from Afghanistan and Pakistan uh, sent them to uh, Syria to fight on um, Bashar al-Assad's behalf. Uh, so they were getting desperate. And so do sanctions work? Yes, they work in denying the regime the resources that it needs to maintain power both domestically and externally. Now, could it be done? Yeah, of course it could be done. The Biden administration, all the Biden administration would have to do is enforce existing sanctions. So cut off the illicit sales to China cut off the illicit sales to Venezuela and Syria. We can do that, we've done that, we know how to do that. And the people want that, the Iranian people want that. The Iranian people know. You don't hear protesters say, down with America, you know, sanctions are killing us. No, they're saying the regime is killing us, not the external pressure. So I think the way to go to do this, you know, in a sober way uh, is to, at this point, we can bring back the international community. It doesn't have to be America, American sanctions exclusively. At this point, our friends have seen what's going on in Iran. I think they, they see that when the regime gets money, it doesn't use it to benefit its economy, to benefit its own people. It, what it does is it uses the money for its nuclear program. It uses the money to finance terrorist activities abroad to finance kidnappings of American citizens. So uh, uh, the French actually uh, have done some human rights sanctions. The European Union has done some human rights sanctions. And I think people are waking up to the reality that whatever financial benefit the regime gets out of negotiating, it doesn't put toward improving the life of its people. It puts toward uh, sustaining itself and supporting its external ambitions. So I, I, you know, 
I believe sanctions work. I believe we should institute sanctions. And I think the United Nations Security Council and our allies should join us. I, I, I do take your point about, is this sustainable? My, my answer would be, in order to achieve our ends, we need to think about this as a very sharp instrument that needs to be used quickly, rather than to think, okay, we're just gonna place sanctions on this country for the foreseeable future, and then let's just see what happens. It needs to be a very heavy amount of pressure right when it's most germane, right when it's most responsive to what's going on in the country. So they need to be punished because of this level of repression, right? But what's happening with the Biden administration, particularly Robert Malley, who's the special envoy, is that he's keeping the door open for the regime to come back. And what does it mean for the regime to come back to the negotiating table? It means that the United States wants to make a deal with the regime. If the United States does manage to make a deal with the regime, it means a massive windfall of money to the regime. Can you imagine handing apartheid South Africa a massive amount of cash? We're talking about billions of dollars, which as Glenn said, they need right when they are repressing the anti-apartheid movement? Or can you imagine handing uh, the, the communist regimes of Czechoslovakia or Poland or the Soviets massive amounts of cash right when the people of those countries are reaching the tipping point of being free? It, this right now in particular doesn't make sense. Even if you're an anti-sanctions person for principled moral reasons, I'm not, I am pro-sanctions. But let's say you have, you, let's say you have it an anti-sanctions position because of a good heart and morality. This particular time is not the time to do it. Can I, uh, <clears throat> uh, I, I want to get into all this. I, I can't tell you how much I disagree with all of some, not all. This is an evil regime. We know that and all that. But Biden is not responsible. And we had a president before Biden, the other guy, as, uh, as he used to call him. And uh, I, I don't see that, that the Ira Iranian regime was necessarily crumbling uh, at, at that time. And if, if only the elections, are you you're trying to tell us that if only the election, the real election results were, uh, were, uh, were, were uh, abided by, we would have no, no Iranian regime? I, it, it's very difficult to make that argument. And I'm not sure, I mean, with all our passion, at, at the uh, injustices and, and, and the evil of this regime, it's not, I'm not sure that what, you, what, that what you're proposing is, is going to lead to this downfall. Now, what, it, what has happened, it has happened, as it happened under Biden, there are these r remarkable demonstrations. Now, what you have referred to, and I hope you're right, uh, as a revolution. So, and this is what I thought we were going to hear about today, mm -hmm. about the eyes on the revolution. Tell us something sure. about this revolution. Is this revolution going to do something to change it? And by the way, I just looked up on my phone about Biden on Iran, and he, he spoke at one moment, maybe by mistake, but he said, free, we're going to free Iran. Okay, but did the other guy ever say free Iran? I don't think so. I don't remember. I mean, I'll, I'll look it up for us. <laughs> That's a good point. Okay. okay. So he made a mistake and he said, free Iran. Okay. But he said it. He said it. It's out there. But his so, team, his administration okay. Okay. doesn't let he, that let, be the policy. Say, so, but I, I would like you to tell us about the revolution in Iran. And is it going to, is it, aside from intervening militarily, in what other ways can, can, sure. we, can we help it out? But what is the revolution? Is it, does it have a chance? The, okay, tell us about that. Do you want to start? No, I'm um, I want to say something about this uh, after the other. Uh, there is there said that sanction, this is smart sanction, is different with other sanction, which means always the United States uh, government always try to do not damage people. Then, uh, for example, put sanction on uh, plastic industry in Iran because that uh, industry controlled by all RGC. And uh, there is no any benefit for Iranian people. All those money they make 
they send me for Kuzi, uh, they send me for the proxy forces, this board. That's why Iranian people are happy because they say that there is no indemnity for us. When we don't have any indemnity, okay, put sanction on that. So <coughs> cut IRGC's hand because, because we cannot put or send the money out of the country. Money is here, then we can defend this. But this is a long-term process. Uh, when uh, uh, Trump administration start to put pressure, maximum pressure, uh, minimum, um, this is, uh, uh, there is no really specific, I mean, time I but, but this long-term process, and minimum two years or three years, we need to see the result of it. Because IRGC has some uh, sources. They can use sources for, for uh, I mean, their purposes during this time. They have black market. They know that how they can bypass. But right now, why we call it revolution uh, uh, the a protest right now? Because we have sign of revolution, the first one. All those sources, money sources, the Iranian regime used these during these years to pay to IRGC, to kill people, to passage to kill people. All those money they paid to the Pashto Shabi in Iraq to bring them, or Fatimi uh, in Syria, to bring them inside Iran, kill protested. That money finished, they don't have money. The second one, legitimacy. During these years, the Iranian regime always said that they are going to protect the Muslim people in, in Middle East. They had some reason, but during these years, they showed that those reasons are fake. There is benefit for the government, and people know that, so there is no any legitimacy. And corruption. Corruption is really, really, really big problem of this government. The Iranian people know that they are corrupt. So right now they can. When students are involved, these, these three items of the students are involved, women are involved, and they don't have any fear from you know, uh, 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 the gun and uh, uh, you know, killing uh, by the government, this is revolution. So definitely, uh, if, if you ask me, I say that less than uh, a year, maybe next year, this time, uh, Islamic Republic, I just want to put things in context for everybody about what's happening right now. So as you guys know, for the last two months, uh, there have been large demonstrations in Iran over, uh, I don't know, probably 150, 200 cities across the, the country. Uh, you know, at the risk of telling you what you already know, it's, they, they started when a young woman named uh, Amasa Amini uh, was arrested by the morality police for not wearing her headscarf tightly enough, for revealing too much hair or whatever made-up reason, and she died in custody. That created a lot of outrage among women who were already un uneasy about the severe restrictions on what women can and can't do in Iran. Uh, the, heads the mandatory headscarf, the mandatory hijab laws, in Iran have been a source of a lot of tension for, for, for a while, because that is not the life that many Iranian women have known up until the Islamic Republic. So it's been a real symbolic imposition on, 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 on womanhood in, in Iran. So the murder of this Masa Amini has created a lot of upheaval, and slowly but surely, women, uh, Iranian women, uh, started protesting you know, seized on this moment and started going out on the street, stopped fearing the consequences, whether they're university students, high school students, uh, and then eventually just your everyday people started joining that movement because, not because they all um, were protesting the headscarf laws, you know, some of them care, you know, a lot of them uh, were, were, you know, this rage has been building up. It's been building up because of the corruption that Maryam and Ahmad has, has mentioned. And I'll give you one example of that. You may have heard uh, there have been severe floods in Iran over the last few years. Uh, the Iranian regime has been so irresponsible, IRGC has been so irresponsible with uh, shepherding um, the natural resources of the country for all of this time that they've taken, they've built up an enormous amount of dams in the country, 600 dams in the country, 
basically rerouting the way water flows within the country. Why? To line the pockets of their cronies and make some money. So that has caused people to die of hunger, of thirst. And you know, uh, about a year ago or so, there were literally you know uh, an issue of people dying of thirst uh, in a, you know a certain region of Iran. That is an ongoing problem. So that's just one problem. There are other problems of people not being paid. That's a practical problem because of corruption. There are other problems of um, uh, you know during I think COVID itself has brought on a lot of uh, discontent because of mismanagement of the uh, pandemic within Iran. Uh, now, you may, you guys may not know, but um, a, a lot, you know, when, when uh, China shut down its, uh, its outgoing flights, Iran was one of the countries that allowed, the, the, only one, the only country that did the bidding of the uh, communist regime in China to fly people in and out of China meaning that it, it is likely responsible for taking COVID from China and spreading it not just across the region, but into Europe, like you know, Italy, uh, Lebanon, all of, all of those countries in the region were receiving flights from Iranian airlines that were doing the bidding of the Chinese regime. So all of these things, all of these things together, you know, kind of were, were, were building up and you know, were enraging people and the murder of this young woman because of she wasn't wearing her headscarf properly enough, kind of, you know, exploded, and has caused people to, 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 uh, you know, use whatever, whatever uh, feelings they had at that point and express them by going out there. I'm, I'm afraid we brought out. Yeah. All students, as you can see, have to know yes. how to do other things. But as long as they're not falling asleep. Yes. Yeah. No, certainly not. No. Thank you all for, for coming and for speaking. Thank you. Yeah, please join me in thanking all our panelists. And thank you for the audience. Thanks for coming. Thank you so much. If anyone wants to discuss further with the panelists, um, you know, I hope they're willing to. And uh, we still have lots of pizza if you'd like to take some. But uh, thank you, George. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.